millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Almost a year ago, this podcast began with a show about the 1918 Great Flu pandemic. At that point, we were reopening after lockdowns, and we were also pre-Omicron. We, were not, we didn't yet have the strain that reignited all these fears about further lockdowns and contagion. But today, a year later, many places still have high rates of contagion, and yet have ended mask mandates and seek to put the pandemic into the rearview mirror. Now, that said, there are places that aren't reacting that way. China has only recently introduced lockdowns, and zero-COVID places like New Zealand are grappling with community outbreaks. So is COVID over? And COVID, can it ever be over? How do we react to the changing virology and the social norms? When I interviewed Chris Nichols a year ago about the great flu, we had yet to consider how a pandemic ends, or if it does. We didn't really reflect on how the great flu ended, or if it did. So when Chris suggested we come back to talk about the great flu, I couldn't think of a better idea. Chris has recently been part of a roundtable discussion called What Came Next? Reflections on the Aftermaths of the 1918-1919 Flu Pandemic in the Age of COVID. And that was a discussion at one point, really, but it was also published in the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. So it's out there. It's only recently been published, and you can get a handle on that. But today on the podcast, what I've done is I've invited three of the participants of that roundtable to discuss their reflections. And that was really Chris's idea, so much credit is due to him. I'm joined today by Chris, of course, who listeners will know from the first episode. He's professor of history at Oregon State University and director of the university's Humanities Center. He's also the author of a wonderful book called Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age. And he's also brought together a number of scholars for some amazing collaborative books like A Companion to the Gilded Age in Progressive Era and two recent books, one, Rethinking Grand American Strategy and Ideology in U.S. Foreign Relations, which is due to be released in the coming months. Joining Chris is Madalena Marinari, Professor of History, Peace Studies, and Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies at Gustavus Adolphus College in Minnesota. Madalena is an expert on immigration and the author of Unwanted, Italian and Jewish Mobilization Against Restrictive Immigration Laws. She's also co-edited a wonderful book called A Nation of Immigrants Reconsidered, U.S. Society in an Age of Restriction, which, along with her monograph, makes her the leading scholar on migration in a period of restrictive quotas. 
We also have David Hewson, Senior Lecturer of History at the University of York in the UK, an urban historian and an expert on economics and labor. He's the author of Progressive Inequality, Rich and Poor in New York from 1890 to 1920, which gives us a wonderful, if not disturbing, picture of the gross inequalities in labor strife in New York City during those years. David's work gives us much more of a realistic picture of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era cities, and one that Julian Fellows might want to think about for his next season of the TV show. Welcome to the show, everyone, and welcome to our first group podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I knew that was going to happen. We were all going to crash into each other. And this is <laughs> this is the first experimental four-person podcast, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all comes together. So today we're talking about well, we're talking about COVID, and we're talking about the 1918-1919 flu. Uh, and I'm reluctant to say that we're at the end of COVID, uh, although it does feel as though there's some degree of normality returning, at least in phases. But as we transition from pandemic to endemic, can everyone share your thoughts on the end of COVID and the great flu? I mean, how does it happen? Does it happen? And what have we learned? And maybe we'll start off with uh, Madalena. Thank you. So um, I think as I, as I mentioned in the, in the round table, it's, if you look at both uh, the end of the flu pandemic and the end of COVID-19, it's really different if you keep uh, immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers in mind, right? Because these are places that have been ignored and left unprotected from the very beginning. So I hope it's not surprising if I mentioned that uh, outbreaks are still uh, fairly high uh, among these populations. And I think the um, the war in Ukraine, so this is an update on the um, uh, roundtable, right? The war in Ukraine is farther exacerbated, right? There is I think it's striking to me that there is even no mention. And so I, I feel like my one contribution can be that um, while there are pockets of societies that feel or seem like they're going back to normal, that is definitely not the case for uh, immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, right? And one of the commonalities that I see uh, between that and now is uh, people not reporting for fear of being scapegoated. Uh, or um, higher um, death rates because they have little to no access to um, healthcare, their economic concerns. And in the US in particular, um, this seem to be particularly uh, true with the vaccinations, the language barrier and the lack of trust toward government institutions is very high. And I think that's complicated any effort, right, to either uh, share information or um, promote vaccination, right? So uh, in 18, 1918 and 1919, we know that, for example, very little of the literature was even translated. Um, and so communities were fairly isolated and had access to very little uh, knowledge. But I, I could keep going, but I'll stop there and turn it over to uh, maybe Chris. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess my take would be, I think that's really useful uh, to think about sort of pockets of communities or um, the different ways uh, in which um, later stages of a pandemic are, are experienced differently by across the same society, much less across nation states. Um, I suppose one thing that I would emphasize is that 
you know, sort of the history of pandemics and certainly 1918 and 19 suggests that the endemicity or an end or an aftermath is really in the eye of the beholder. And it's not something that's biological or epidemiological, but really psychological and political. That's certainly what we've been seeing the last year or so, right? Um, and it's what you see in 1920, uh, where the fourth wave in the US was more deadly than the first or the third, for instance. Uh, 1920, you see lots of deaths globally from the flu, uh, but you see plenty of societies beginning to live with this much higher mortality rate from a virus moving across borders and through populations. So, you know, we have a very different sort of medical, sociological, and political context today, but that is a sort of fundamental truth, at least for now, that it's political and psychological, that the end is the sort of thing that Magdalena is suggesting, right, that you're forgetting, in some societies, we're forgetting people who are more at risk, just as we did in the beginning of this pandemic, but in different sorts of ways now that we've got vaccines and medical treatments. And I, I think looking out to the future, the sort of directionality we can see from the pandemic of 1918 and 19 is that, you know, it's not until about 1924 um, that that flu virus takes on the characteristic sort of seasonal flu components that we think of today, where it affects um, the youngest and the oldest in the population. Up until about 1924, it was still affecting the healthiest people in society. And nevertheless, societies were living with it and living with these higher mortality rates. That may well be what we see. And that's one of the conclusions of several people in the roundtable that we're looking at an ongoing pandemic or uh, epidemic or endemic uh, viral transmission moving forward for quite a while. Yeah, I'd agree with Chris and, and Madalena both that there is this sort of, I think what you're, you're both kind of getting at is, is um, rather than an end of the pandemic, what you have is a sort of combined and uneven experience of the pandemic. Um, uh, to borrow a phrase from political economy, um, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I've started thinking about the end of this pandemic or the aftermath of this pandemic is that it's not, you know, I mean, drawing from this essay that I cited in the roundtable um, from Douglas Almond, is the nineteen eighteen influenza pandemic over, uh, which you know was published in two thousand four, and he essentially says no, it's never ended. <laughs> um, is that really what happens with pandemics is that they get subsumed um, by, uh, rather than, than end, they get subsumed by the politics um, and the economic developments of the moment that they're in. Um, and the way that takes shape in 1918-19 and then 1920-21 is, I think, um, in different in important ways uh, from the way it seems to be taking shape now. There are a lot of superficial similarities, sort of, you know, the growth of inflation, um, uh, eating away at uh, paychecks, labor up, up, uprisings of labor militancy, um, really during the pandemic, um, uh, and um, actually war in Russia. There was the Russian Civil War going on at the same time, which is affecting global economic flows um, in a variety of ways that uh, uh, sort of, interestingly enough, um, uh, there's sort of an opposite phenomenon because the U.S. was still uh, just becoming a majority urban uh, country in 1920. Um, uh, still had such a powerhouse of agricultural production that the U.S. was actually sending food to uh, food aid to Russia in the early 1920s, um, uh, rather than worrying about food prices uh, uh, as we are today. Um, but uh, one of the things that I think you do see is that those those kinds of politics, um, uh, you know, the political developments of 
uh, the end of World War One um, and the geopolitical considerations of Woodrow Wilson's um, uh, sort of ending of the war take up more space in the public mind um, because in part they the sort of impetus for that happened first. Um, and uh, uh, you know that is ultimately, um, I think what happens in 1920, 21, you get this sort of rapid deflationary policy from the Fed and the Federal Reserve of New York, and um, it spikes massive unemployment, which we still haven't seen yet um, uh, in the so-called aftermath of COVID, um, although it may be coming. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. The latest, uh, the latest inflation numbers um, uh, seem to indicate that inflation might have peaked last month and is just starting a slow decline, um, but uh, uh, it's really too early to say, I think. It's incredible the parallels, whether it's the politics, the warfare, the agricultural fallout and inflation. I mean, it, it, it's remarkable. And yet there's a big difference, isn't there, about how we experience the two. Uh, you know, remote working has really probably saved the economy in, in, in so many ways. And, and also the data that we use seems to be ever-changing as well. And as historians, you know, this is our, these, these are our primary sources, right? So uh, what, what has the data shown us now that we're, I mean, I talked to Chris at the beginning uh, of 2021 about the pandemic, and we were talking about data like, you know, cases and deaths. And now we have all these different data points. What have we gained or lost with all of these metrics? And I might start with you, David, then work our way backwards. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I spoke about this a little bit or wrote about this a little bit in the roundtable. My feeling about it is that um, uh, as much as has been gained by uh, an ability to kind of analyze and respond to problems quickly, uh, uh, you know, and on an empirical basis, hypothetically, um, there's actually a, a sort of tendency toward dependency on, on particular kinds of data that can then inhibit uh, uh, a comprehensive or swift response. Um, I know a lot of the sort of popular media literature um, around the question of school closures, uh, uh, rather than sort of treating, uh, seeing schools as generally indoor spaces where lots of people are running around in close proximity to each other. Um, when people were debating about mask mandates, there was this uh, uh, sort of demand from uh, more data-driven scientists, well, or, or you know, in many cases, actually economists who were masquerading as epidemiologists. Um, well, we need to have more data before we can uh, take action on uh, mask mandates. And, and so it seems like this dependence on data sometimes produces uh, a kind of paralysis um, uh, and an inability to act on the basis of deduction. Um, and deduction from science that is epidemiological science uh, and immunological science that is much more well-developed than it was in 1918, 1919. Um, and yet we still you know, seem to be facing a lot of the same problems with um, misinformation and uh, uh, misguided policy. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really interesting point. I, I like the way that you make it in the roundtable, David. Um, you know, one of the one element of that is is something that we did see in 1918 and 19, which is this sort of um, valorization of the economy and this false dichotomy of the public health versus the health of the economy. And, and certainly there were medical professionals, there were economists, and there were politicians who made that case then, which sounds eerily similar to today, despite the 
the massive amount more data we have now and, and capacity to actually interrogate those questions. Nevertheless, that, you know, the politics of that, I think is, is maybe the more interesting way of thinking about this um, in, the, in, the, in the way of your question, Mike, which is to say, you know, um, there's one element here, you know, I think I'm thinking about the science of wastewater um, testing. Uh, a lot of campuses and universities did great wastewater testing, including mine here at Oregon State. We could figure out where there was gonna be an outbreak and quarantine a dorm in, in record time. And then that proliferated through different communities. But of course, the politics of that were quite different. Um, you know, so as, as Madalena will undoubtedly, you know, note, right, if you look at um, immigrant communities, if you look at refugees, if you look at um, people of color, Right, the, these communities maybe don't want to be surveilled in the same sort of way that college students want to be surveilled or can be surveilled, even if they don't want to be. Um, so that, there's one element there, just thinking through some of the dimensions of the data we can develop and then how we can act on it. That's another crucial question. You, see, you saw this in 1918 and 19, and it's been, I, for me, um, vividly clear lately that, you know, we, just because we know what David was mentioning, right, we know that having a whole bunch of kids in a school with poor ventilation is, is just bad for viral transmission. They knew that in 1918 and 19, a lot of schools practice ventilation. They, they taught outside. There's amazing photos of people learning in snow. I mean, uh, and nevertheless, plenty of school districts stayed wide open with no masking right, in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. So how, how, how useful is that information if people are unwilling to act on it? That would be my fundamental question. And I don't think it's that different between these two pandemics. I couldn't agree more, right? I think uh, it's, it's useful to frame this information in terms of, as um, Chris just said, the politics of this data, right? We have we really probably have all the information we need to act uh, to contain, prevent, right, or limit spreads, but we have decided not to. And I think, or we decided not to fully believe this information. And I think when it comes to immigration, that's a, a, a really good example, right? So um, domestically, um, there is a lot of um, skepticism or mistrust, right, of this, of why this information is being collected and what it's used for, right, as a surveillance mechanism. Um, and er earlier on, right, despite plenty of evidence showing that uh, some of these communities, because of their um, health history, the, the lack of healthcare access, were some of the hardest hit, right? Uh, you also had the emergence of uh, the myth of the essential worker, right? It didn't matter that they were exposing themselves and exposing their families to the virus. We just absolutely needed them. But I think the discrepancy between collecting the data and what we're going to do with it um, comes also what happens at the border, right? The Trump administration has um, pushed Title 42, which is still in place under the Biden administration and a lot of uh, politicians on both sides still want to keep as an effective measure to control uh, the spread of COVID-19, right? Title 42 essentially is a public health order uh, issued by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention to close travel to non-essential uh, workers, essential uh, migrants. Um, and does it work? We have plenty of evidence that is done. it does not. Um, and that re rejecting especially asylum seekers and uh, refu uh, refugees and keeping them in this overcrowded camps has actually led to uh, outbreaks, right? And so in this case, I think it's a really good example of seeing the gap between 
we have this information, we're collecting this information, we know exactly what's going to happen and refusing, right? Because uh, it's easy to kind of, it gives you a veneer of action. It gives politicians a veneer of action and it's geared towards a population that is already marginalized and scape, historically scapegoated, right? And these, it actually happened in 1918 and 1919, despite the fact that um, the rates of infection were not higher in immigrant communities than uh, in native born communities, that was completely ignored, right? There are communities that were completely isolated, walled off, where people couldn't go in, food couldn't go in. Um, and so it still amazes me, right? That much of the rhetoric uh, and how this information is used hasn't changed a hundred years later. That's a really useful segue for the next question I have, because I think what we're really talking here about is about forecasting and about um, the trajectory that, that, that things are going, the, the direction of travel that things are going. And I suppose expectations is really what I want to get to next, because when I had first talked to Chris about the flu and, the, and COVID, it was uh, September 2021. It was just before the Omicron um, wave it was coming and uh, the lockdowns in China are now here and all the supply chain failures, they hadn't quite happened yet. Um, how does the pandemic shake up our expectations about normality? Madalena, do you want to pick up where you left off? Because I think what you were just about to, if you're talking about immigration, you know, and you're talking about the lives of communities that are maybe not always in the limelight of people's, uh, you know, sort of um, their, their consciousness all the time. What, what are the expectations about where things go from here? And what about during 1918, 1919? Where did things improve? I mean, was this, a, what was the direction of travel? So um, after, in 1921 and then 1924, so we're about 100, exactly 100 years away, the United States passed the most restrictive immigration law in US history. Uh, it completely, uh, it almost completely banned immigration from Asia. It severely restricted immigration from um, Eastern and Southern Europe, and it, it imposed new restrictions on the travel from the Americas. They were exempted from this larger restrictions, but there were other ways in which they were uh, policed. And it's not by chance that two days later after the passage of the 1924 Act, the Border Patrol was created. Um, and so it's interesting to me that both, one of the consequences, uh, the aftermath of 1918 and 1919, and then today is a closed off wall, the world essentially, right? Where one of the immediate reaction is to uh, contain travel, even though goods and ideas travel fairly freely, right? Um, because now we have a hundred years worth of uh, um, policing control, but also controlling and scapegoating, uh, we're even more closed off now, despite the fact we have plenty of evidence that shows that uh, borders don't stop these viruses, right? And so then like now you have uh, an even further criminalization of uh, immigration and move movement, um, but also the return of violence, right? Which is always uh, lingering. I think I am, I, I use this word, I'm shocked that um, it, attacks against Asian Americans in the United States have completely disappeared from any coverage, even though they're still 
happening, right? They, uh, in 2021, they ex compared to 2020, there was a, a spike of 300%. And that hasn't really gone down, but somehow even that, that violence has become normalized, right? Which is, of course, part of a wave of, of uh, uh, increasing white supremacist violence in the United States um, more broadly, not just against Asian Americans, which obviously had this sort of propagandistic connection to the, the idea of the spread of COVID as the Wuhan virus or the China virus or whatever, um, but also against Black Americans, against Latinx Americans, um, and against immigrants. Um, and of course, one of the, this is one of the clear parallels between the aftermath of, of uh, 1918, 1919, and <clears throat> the COVID virus today is this rise in uh, the virulence of white supremacist violence. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, the rise of the second Klan, um, the consolidation of systems of Jim Crow violence, um, all of the, the, in addition to the, this most restrictive immigration policy in the history of the United States, um, these are unfortunately dynamics that we do seem to be reckoning with um, in, in many of the same ways. Um, one sort of small uh, note of hope um, that I'd like to sound, uh, even as I fully acknowledge the, the reality of, um, you know, and in particular, I think how frightening uh, what Madalena is saying, given the enlarged capacities of state violence in uh, the United States in the last hundred years. Um, I do think that uh, uh, the level of um, political, we're in a slightly different political moment, um, uh, right now in terms of the alliance between the state and a resurgent big business um, in an attitude toward uh, really uh, excessive repression of, um, uh, well, excessive repression, any repression is excessive, but um, uh, the repression of, of uh, anti-capitalist workers' movements. Um, you know, this was a, a real sort of signature element of the political dynamics of uh, 1919 to 1921. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there is, of course, um, in many ways, a much more hobbled uh, uh, form of labor militancy right now in the United States than there was at the beginning of the 20th century, um, after decades and decades of uh, labor uprisings through the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, as many of your listeners will know. Um, uh, but I do think that um, there are uh, there are also some small glimmers of hope in terms of the unionization efforts uh, of some of those service employees and retail employees that um, I was not referring to in the roundtable that I think Alan pointed out rightly um, more regularly characterize uh, employment in our own day um, than they did in 1918-1919. The Amazon warehouse on Staten Island, the Starbucks uh, uh, locations that have been unionizing pretty steadily over the course of the last months. Um, and one hopes that one will see a sort of more general uh, coalescence of working class militancy um, perhaps also in response to some of the realities of the pandemic, particularly in terms of care work in nursing homes, um, which is some of the most exploitative labor in the United States right now, and a major component of uh, job growth um, as the baby boomer generation uh, uh, approaches the moment where they, they will need um, or are needing uh, uh, that, that late life care. I'll just interject briefly to say that's where I see some hope as well. Um, I think there, there's 
there are more interracial coalitions than we saw 100 years ago. Uh, this group were you know, systematically and intentionally uh, separated and, and pitted against each other. Uh, I think because this is a specific moment about racial reckoning in the United States as well, that there's more potential of these coalitions with similar interests, but who have operated separately, right? Uh, so that's my, my glimmer of hope that I wanted to share. <laughs> I appreciate both of you having some glimmers of hope here um, in the midst of our historical parallels to, you know, enormous immigration restriction, rising violence, economic dislocation. I mean, the, just to be really specific for our listeners who don't know, right, the summer of 1919 was often referred to as Red Summer, uh, not because of its anti-communism or anti-radicalism, although there was plenty, but because of the bloodiness of the summer, because blood ran in labor act, you know, actions, the great steel strike in Seattle, the Boston police go on strike, right? There's tons of race massacres, which we used to call race riots, or some of us scholars did. Uh, now we more accurately refer to them as, as race massacres and racist white supremacist violence. There's a lot of that. And, you know, when one of the motivations for this roundtable was we historians of this era kept getting asked, oh, after the pandemic, there was the roaring 20s. And journalists would say, that was really good. That's, some, that's something we should look forward to, right? And then all of us, all, all of us in this conversation would say, no, actually, right? the rise of the Klan, white supremacist violence, uh, it, just slamming the gates shut on immigration, all kinds of things in this era were, were, are deeply troubling if those are historical parallels that you're seeking to uh, embrace uh, as something that- you Can I just interrupt, interrupt you briefly, Chris, to, to, to really hammer home this point about how the Roaring Twenties are not something to look forward to? Um, you know, first of all, it's important to remember that the, the, the measures that um, the Fed took to deflate the economy in 2021 um, created a massive wave of deflationary effects across the world that, uh, uh, you know, some historians have argued contributed materially to the political context that produced Nazism and led to World War II. So like, let's not get all excited about the, you know, the possibility of um, uh, our economic technocratic overlords figuring out how to uh, get the economy back on a smooth, productive line. Um, the other thing I'd say about that is that, of course, inequality continued to grow all the way until 1929. Um, so even, you know, unemployment came down after the recession of 2021, but it never reached the kind of wartime lows that uh, it had been at in uh, 1917. Um, I think it was down to like 1.2% or something. These are official numbers, of course, but... Uh, but in any case, I just think, you know, and that the, the benefits of the Roaring Twenties were, of course, um, uh, widely divergent in, in uh, who got to enjoy them, um, not only because of the sort of systematic and institutionalized racism of the United States, um, as it was then, uh, of course, still exists in many different forms now, but, uh, uh, but it was also uh, uneven in terms of region, in terms of uh, employment category, um, and farmers really just got uh, knocked about mercilessly for most of the decade. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to, to really hammer that point home. Carry on. <laughs> if we get back to the immigrant communities for a moment, and, and um, I pick on you, Madalena, for a, a little bit here, a couple of questions about immigration. What can immigrant communities and populations tell us about healthcare in the 1910s and 1920s, and, and also today in the, the 2020s? I just wanted to build off of something that David said, and then I'll get back to your question, which is, you know, for immigrants, it meant the 20s were followed by the 30s, which meant massive deportation and relocation of 
up to a million. We don't know. We don't have the numbers yet because no, no, don't want to check them of Mexican and Mexican Americans, right? Uh, so even if you had a good experience in the twenties, I'm sure the thirties were not too fun for anyone. So one of the things that um, I've been struck and I've been just racking my mind about this is why immigration historians haven't written more about what was happening to these communities. And I think it goes back to because they were so uh, isolated um, and segregated, much of the information is in um, newspapers written in their languages, right? And so I, I remember uh, one of the things that I didn't think I would find today and then I ended up finding, but as I was reading some of um, Italian American newspapers, because they had no idea of what to do, how to react and what, best, what the best practices were, uh, there are articles after articles for weeks, for months on end about these homemade potions, right? Which clearly did, did not work. And so um, despite outreach from uh, local authorities, it's striking to me how much of that is still happening, right? So I, I think it, it speaks to kind of two level of mistrust. One is the state authorities, but also the medical profession, right? Um, where people don't think um, these American doctors have your best interest at heart, right? And I, I will mention something that it's tangential, but I think it gives you a sense of what's happening. In, in a few years back in the United States, uh, in the, here in Minnesota, um, some anti-vaxxers targeted the Somali community and they convinced them that they shouldn't vaccinate their kids against uh, polio. And so we ended up having an outbreak, right? So you have the history, the state history of, you know, violence and mistrust and raids, which doesn't help, but the relationship with the health authorities isn't um, that much better either. And it's striking to me how similar the two um, situations are um, a hundred years ago and, and today, and, and how much there is a reliance on homemade, uh, remedies, or even worse, you know, toughen it out. And um, for example, you know, for a lot of these communities where there are multi-generational, right, living in the same family, that that meant um, raising your chances of um, uh, uh, infection. It also doesn't help that a lot, then like now, uh, a lot of these communities live perhaps in uh, um, not exactly state-of-the-art housing uh, with very poor uh, ventilation, right? And so you really see how this history um, exacerbated an already difficult situation once COVID-19 started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. 
Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of the other things that I was thinking about, and I know that Chris and I had talked about this before, but I think your perspective, Madalena, would be really useful on this is you know, the, the flu in 1918 is referred to as the Spanish flu. There's this foreign component, you know, foreign in quotation marks there, you know, that it's conceived of as, an, a, it's, it's probably Kansas where it starts, right? But the, the United States doesn't think that that's the case. So how much does that factor in then in, in terms of how the, the disease itself is imagined in public consciousness? And then and then today, I mean, we've, we've recently moved away from naming uh, variants by their geography, which was nonsense in the first place, but, you know, we're now naming it with Greek letters. So how is how have things changed? Have we learned? Have we, you know, has it gotten better? Yeah, so I actually, I was going to mention this earlier, and maybe we can all take a turn at some point about this. It's the, the willful commitment to ignoring uh, any lessons from history, right? Almost right away. Uh, as in two years ago. Um, so what's interesting about the uh, Spanish flu, right? It, it, um, it was intentionally named that way because it was building in a on a long history of connecting disease with foreigners and foreign bodies, right? And by the time you get to uh, World War I, there have been uh, massacres, riots, attacks against immigrant communities, right? Um, Mexicans uh, had to be disinfected as they uh, came through the border, right? But with 19, uh, with the with the flu, 18, 1918-1919 flu pandemic, there is actually, aside from the name, there's not a systematic effort to make that connection. And historians think that it's in part because um, the, there's something called World War I that was happening and that uh, pushing that too far would have actually undermined the United States' ability to, to fight in the war, right? But that doesn't mean that it doesn't pop up uh, elsewhere, right? So by the time you get to 1921 and 1924, there are no qualms about making the connection between disease and immigrants. And, and in fact, by 1924, it's almost, uh, it's really, really hard for anyone with any disease to come in into the country because the, the laws have become so restrictive. And in fact, there is a, I was just rereading uh, for this roundtable actually, the debates, they're obsessed with sailors because it's the one group that they haven't restricted enough, right? And so that's where you say, yes, that might've been uh, why the flu got the better of us because it was because of the sailors coming in and bringing it, right? I mean, was there any evidence of that happening? No, but they knew what they were doing. And by 1924, the 
World War One is in the past, and they can actually be explicit about that kind of um, language. Another thing, I, I don't know how far we want to take this, but there's this is also the height of uh, eugenics, right? And so there, by the time you get to 1924, you see also, it's like, of course, they're the ones dying because they also have an inferior gene pool, which is one more reason why we need really stricter immigration law so that we have as few of these immigrants as possible that could delete the racial um, makeup of the United States, right? And I think by, 24, by 1924, it's clear that immigration laws are a tool of social engineering, essentially. Um, and the some of the, the legacy of the pandemic really helps drive home even people who had been skeptical, even big business who knows that needs cheap labor all of a sudden turns on anti-immigration. Does anyone else want to come in on that at all? Or I mean, I just add that it's utterly terrifying. I mean, to get away from our glimmers of hope, unfortunately, but it's utter, it's utterly terrifying uh, uh, to consider. Um, the parallels in terms of uh, not just the ideas, but even sometimes the language of uh, uh, white supremacist movements in uh, the 1920s and the 2020s. Um, the great replacement theory is in effect recapitulating um, a lot of these ideas that were popularized uh, by people like Lothrop Stoddard and Madison Grant about you know the rising tide of color, the replacement of uh, the white race and white civilization. Um, by immigrants. And, you know, it speaks to a, a problem that I think extends uh, beyond the immigrant community, both then and now, which is um, the devaluation of particular populations uh, uh, in the context of both considerations of public health and considerations of political rights. Um, you know, I think the, the one group of people that I've been thinking a lot about um, in the midst of COVID is the prison population in the United States, which of course is uh, you know, racially, in terms of national origin, disproportionately of color, and, uh, uh, you know, from immigrant backgrounds. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, these are people who've been exposed, um, in some cases, absolutely wantonly uh, to, uh, to COVID-19. Um, and uh, the prison population, obviously, in the United States is, is way larger now than it was in 1918-19. Um, so, and I think it also speaks to, to uh, the point that Madalena is making about political opportunism, the use of pandemics in order to, you know, even if you're collecting, if you're collecting data, which ostensibly could be used to fight a pandemic and uh, adopt rational public health policy to save lives, instead, what it winds up being, what it winds up being used for is propagandistic campaigns that um, actually turn people against each other um, for the political convenience and uh, gain of, of the people who are, who are, who have sort of predetermined agendas, whether they be anti-immigration, whether they be in support of a carceral state, um, whether they be in support of, uh, you know, expanding police forces, um, uh, expanding access to guns. Um, these are, are, it's sort of bizarre how many seemingly unconnected, uh, uh, you know, to a pandemic or a public health uh, concern issues um, can, can basically be, uh, uh, can, people can ride on the coattails of the pandemic and the data that the pandemic is producing in order to in order to further their agendas that have absolutely nothing to do with public health. I suppose I'll just drill down on that same set of points, which are great and really thoughtful. Um, 
to note that the first articles we can find that that's talk about a Spanish flu or blame Spain for the flu um, are in the British press, and they um, talk about the poor hygiene and climate in Spain. And it absolutely fits with what David and Madeleine are saying, this mixture of nationalism, of a sort of Anglo-Saxonism, uh, eugenics, wartime nationalism, um, all overlapping to be weaponized. You see this in other countries, right? So you, the, the, the French blame the Spanish, the Spanish blame the French, the Russians blame the Germans, they also blame the Chinese, and they have their nomenclature related to this. So, okay, that shouldn't shock us. Um, but, you know, that that's all there very much dovetails with what's to come. And that's one of the points of the roundtable, that the aftermaths of this kind of language are unpredictable. And we may well see, we are seeing some of these elements at work, this political opportunism, as, as David nicely put it. One other element that I think is interesting for us to reflect on, part of your question was about me medical practices and um, uh, you know, what kinds of treatment uh, pe different people could, could expect. And, and I also think that's interesting in this moment, our current moment reflecting on 1918 and 19, if you look at the memoirs of you know, uh, major medical figures from this period, uh, you look at their letters. In 1919 and 1920, they're searching for ways to construct a narrative uh, and they're pretty disappointed with how modern medicine has performed. Fast forward about a decade, uh, they're now suggesting that 1918 and 19 was a moment that proved that modern uh, medical practices were effective and useful, uh, and that we should invest more in you know, training, particularly sort of um, uh, paternalistic kinds of models of medicine, more research. You see lots of, of claims that the need for more research so that the vaccines that were attempted to be made or serums that were attempted to be made could actually be put together in the future. Uh, so one of the things that I, I've been thinking a lot about lately is what narratives are we seeing emerging today about modern you know, uh, medicine? Um, and, and what are the limits of those? What are the self-serving practices that we're seeing? Um, what are the actual effects? So Look, we've had the you know one glimmer of, of positivity. We've had the fastest global race to effective vaccines in human history, right? It's amazing. We've saved millions of lives with this, maybe hundreds of millions of lives. But at the same time, we've had terrible communication from from public health officials. We've had a really uneven um, distribution, production and distribution globally, uh, which is very clearly going to lead to you know, further outbreaks, more mutations and all kinds of problems. How these medical research and development narratives are constructed in this moment give us some sense of where we're headed. And I think there's a lot of this, uh, I don't recall who said it, I think it was Madalena, this sort of willful ignorance. We're, we're seeing that operating a kind of guise or mist um, suffusing this. Uh, and, and that's worrisome because you did see some of that after 1918 and 19. And, and you know, one of the lessons of 1918 and 19 um, was really about the limits of modern medicine and not making false promises. I mean, you can find in cities that are having super spreader events around the world, and uh, particularly in the West in 1918 and 19, these claims that modern nursing and modern medical care would, would deal with this effectively. And then you see you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people die in those cities with those false promises made you know, as headline news right there. So talk about why people People, you know, worried about misinformation, talk about why they didn't help their neighbors. Part of that was that medical communication. Part of that was the false promises. And we live with some of that today. And I suspect, you know, it looks like we will see a whole lot more of that. Well, you know, when you said this, Chris, I was thinking about the Flexner report in 1910, which came out and basically reordered medical teaching in the United States and, and effectively closed the number of African-American and women's schools 
instead of teaching them clinical medicine, they're now teaching them hygiene. You know, this is a willful attempt, a paternalistic and racist attempt to restructure uh, medical training in the United States. And by the time 1918 comes along, we're seeing the consequences of it. Now, I don't know what the parallels are today, but it does seem like the vaccination programs and the rollout of vaccines have been tailored to certain demographics and, and, and willfully, as Madalena says, ignoring others. So yeah, it's not it's not a great parallel. I think maybe the parallel to the Flexner report is the Trump administration canceling the pandemic preparedness uh, division of the uh, you know when whenever that was 2017 or 2018. Um, you know there there are all sorts of moments where um, there were sort of clear and I mean that was a that was a division that was set up by Obama. So in in some sense, I think a lot of the the consensus interpretation of Trump's canceling it was just like pure resentment. Um, uh, at his predecessor, um, but but you know I think one of the one of the tricky things about willful ignorance is that it's not always willful, and this comes back to the question of of how what the frameworks for thinking about the the reports that we're getting um, uh, actually do to to our reaction to that data or that information or whatever it may be, right? So I'm thinking here. Um, about uh, an essay uh, that was written by uh, Harvard economist Robert J. Barrow, who's also associated with the American Enterprise Institute very early um, uh, in the pandemic, um, talking about the effectiveness of non-pharmaceutical interventions um, at lowering the death rate um, uh, in 1918, 1919, uh, and you know, trying explicitly in the context of COVID-19 to take some lessons. Um, and uh, uh, you know, one of the early conclusions um, uh, that he has in the paper says that although non-pharmaceutical interventions such as school closings, prohibitions on public gatherings, uh, quarantines or lockdowns could flatten the curve, ultimately in most cases, they didn't actually reduce the, the, the total death rate or the absolute death rate over the long term. Um, now, a lot of people read the first half of, of uh, or the first passage of that article and immediately come to the conclusion, oh, this is convenient for me because I want school to be open. Like, I want to be able to gather in, in, in public places indoors. Um, lockdowns and quarantines are damaging to the economy, and we don't want them. Um, but, you know, you read a little further, and it turns out that his actual conclusion is that uh, the reason the death rate didn't fall um, uh, over the long term was that those non-pharmaceutical interventions were not sustained long enough. Um, and that, in fact, when they were in places where they were sustained long enough, uh, the death rate did fall. And that's obviously what we've been seeing um, across the world. Uh, you know, we've had this kind of real time comparative study of of how public health policy can intervene successfully in transmission. Um, and uh, for some reason, um, <laughs> even papers that are, you know, at the cutting edge of research today are, are still being willfully misinterpreted or perhaps not willfully misinterpreted. It's just people are only reading enough to get to the part where uh, it says what they agree with. And then they stop reading and they just parrot it on Twitter and they reproduce it for uh, magazines like The Atlantic and, and newspapers like The New York Times. <laughs> but you can see the kind of the negative consequences of like, the, the hierarchy of who deserves care or who deserves vaccines, right, is is spilling through other debates. Like I'm thinking about the formula crisis, uh, right? People came out and said, you should not give formula to immigrant children, right? And so, and that 
is should be shocking, but it isn't because it's in this context of where your lives do matter less, right? And another thing that the pandemic has done that uh, was not the case 100 years ago is to normalize family separation, right? Even uh, the 1921 and 1924 acts really uh, disastrous immigration laws, explicitly racist, they aim to maintain family unification. It was one of the only ways, right, that immigrants could still come in. That's disappeared too, and, and the pandemic has only exacerbated that element that was already underway before then, right? I mean, it's interesting to me how it's it's rationalizing and justifying things that um, we just, in 1918, right, people took the streets in opposition to family separation, and now no one even bats an eye, right? It's just happening. Eva, can I ask you a little bit about the argument that you make in the roundtable about the political economy and about, I, I suppose one of the questions that I, I thought I would ask you is, is really about how do we sift out cause and effect? Because there's so much going on in 1918 and up until 1924, let's say, if that's where we want to call the end point of, of the, the pandemic. How do we sift out what effect the, the pandemic, the flu has on labor, on economics? How do we sit that out from the war and the changing nature of, of American commerce and trade at that time? I think it's really difficult, probably impossible, actually, um, uh, with the, the information we have. I mean, it, it really, I mean, the answer to that, that's a, very much a historian's answer to that question. Um, I think economists will happily tell you that they can quite exactly predict what degree the pandemic, uh, to what degree the pandemic uh, inhibited GDP growth. Um, and in fact, Robert J. Barrow, uh, the economist I just mentioned, has a paper um, that that explicitly sort of uh, uh, pegs the damage to GDP by pandemics at around 6%, um, which interestingly enough, right, like tracks with uh, the initial sort of average drop of GDP uh, in um, uh, 2020. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the COVID crisis before the beginnings of the recovery. Of course, the intervention, the state intervention and the monetary policy intervention, not only of the United States, but uh, many states all over the world to, to uh, that crisis, um, changes the political economic dynamics significantly in terms of you know, how the pandemic relates to economic policy. But those policies that I was mentioning earlier um, uh, in the aftermath of 1918-19, um, flu were, were really uh, more geared toward the economic after effects of the war in most people's mind and in most, his, most of the historiography I've encountered. Um, you know, these are the sort of the activities of the Fed, the policies then of the Harding administration to, uh, you know, cut taxes, but raise revenue by um, expanding the, the, or lowering the income threshold at which you're taxed. Um, these are policies that are all uh, in the historiography related to after effects of the war, after effects of, of the labor militancy, which is itself related more to the war than to the pandemic, um, or to, or really with any relation at all to the pandemic. Um, uh, and so it's quite difficult to actually pinpoint, um, what role the, the 1918-1919 flu played in, um, the political economic development of the 1920s, whereas I think, um, in part because of the information gathering services we have uh, now, and the the I, I think you know in some ways just the fact that COVID um, preceded Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which now is a of course it's the the other major political economic mover um, uh, on on the scene at the moment. 
um, uh, you you wind up there's a there's a sort of path dependency of reasoning um, that that develops um, and uh, you know I think it's been very difficult for me at least to to find um, clear and persuasive arguments uh, from a historical perspective that take into account political context and social context um, uh, that identify what economic effect uh, uh, the 1918, 1919 flu had. But Chris has actually studied this, I think, um, uh, the, the flu and the comparative history much more closely than I have. So maybe he has an answer for us. Well, I love your historian's answers, which I think is exactly <laughs> right. You know, there's some fairly, I imagine you'll agree with this, but if you don't, uh, maybe we'll have some good friction. Um, it, there seems to be some good uh, city level uh, data, not that that's uh, perfect or ideal because there's so much movement in and outside of cities. But if you look at cities that had serious non-pharmaceutical interventions and kept them on longer, you know, one thing I'm fairly persuaded by, at least by those who, economists in general who've studied this, suggests that um, the longitudinal effects of not having as many people die and be ill uh, are, are pretty easy to measure at the city level compared to other cities that didn't do those things. So just a quick, you know, apples to apples, comparable cities, comparable population numbers, different non-pharmaceutical interventions, the city that, that held these on longer, generally speaking, bounced back a little faster. Beyond that, it seems like, you know, very clear, empirical data that, that our economist colleagues would like to see um, doesn't really satisfy historians. The one other, I think, takeaway that's useful, um, this is- I think a lot of urban historians would also be unsatisfied with the city to city comparisons uh, for those same kinds of reasons yes, that like, you right. know, I mean, even the phrase apples to apples as yeah, an urban historian yeah, right. raises my hackles a little bit, but not enough to not enough to disagree with the general impetus of your general direction. Yeah, of your comment. it's a broad brushstrokes <laughs> comment, but it seems like that one thing I've taken from that and, and a lesson that I think historians can tend to suggest to others is non-pharmaceutical interventions work, right? Which you already said. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a very it's a very basic one uh, but the, the other piece that I've, i'm fairly persuaded by and i'd be interested to know what you think I, i've certainly seen in the last few years historians talking a lot about the differences between our economy now and then um, mm -hmm. because there's been so much public discussion and at least some of the um, that came up in the round table as well yeah exactly right and so you know, it does seem like we have a hard time making these comparisons for, for want of data on the one hand, and also because of the radical difference of our economy today. And, and the, it often boils down to one phrase, and I guess I'll just throw it back at you, David, you threw it to me, um, the difference that we're now a consumer society and the, the difference of having a, a consumer society versus that era of society, which didn't have the consumption and service models, the, the sorts of leisure activities, the delivery, even the concept of essential workers, which was there, but it's a wartime concept, right? Uh, and now we've imported that into a kind of pandemic war against the virus in the sorts of ways that Madalena was saying, often ignoring who uh, the, the exposures to those who are doing this essential work. Um, do you buy that? The sort of, it's the, the consumer economy difference fundamentally is, is, a, is, a, is a good way to understand why they're so radically different, 1918, 19, and the 2020 onward? I mean, I don't. I I think it's an element of uh, that you have to take into consideration when you're thinking about you know whatever differences there are in terms of economic development. But it's certainly not sort of the the skeleton key for for understanding all the differences. Um, and you know, I mean, my tendency as a historian is to to look to continuity. Um, uh, it's sort of a, a counterintuitive or um, uh, maybe contrarian position as a historian. I think most historians are interested in how things change over time, but, um, but I do think that 
that uh, you know a lot of this discussion that we've just been having has been has concerned the continuities between 1918, 1919, and and our present moment. And um, I think when we get too bogged down in uh, the the sort of specifics of the shape of the economy, um, the, the the sort of particular texture of labor um, as it exists today, as opposed to then, there are very important reasons to study those differences. Um, I'm not sure that public health policy, when it comes to you know coming to conclusions about non-pharmaceutical interventions, are really the reason that we want to be identifying those differences, or that they make much of a difference in terms of viral transmission. Um, I, I don't think that was necessarily where you were going with that, but but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, th I think on the other hand, there are some very important differences between that moment and our own moment, considering questions of how the aftermath is, you know, if we're going to call it that, is going to play out. Um, one of which I would say is uh, state capacity to intervene, both in terms of public health and in terms of of uh, questions of economic inequality um, and and the development of the economy over the next 10, 20 years um, in the US. And we're facing a whole bunch of different crises uh, that are uh, interwoven with that, not least of all the climate crisis. Um, uh, and and you know, I, I do think that um, thinking about the differences of state capacity can either be something that leads us to optimism about the possibilities for actually redressing injustice and uh, uh, intervening powerfully to make the world a better and freer and more equal place, or it can terrify us because um, for all of the reasons that I think Madalena has spoken to most eloquently um, in this conversation, um, the state is uh, primarily seemingly these days interested in acting for, for the benefit of an abstract idea of economic growth to the detriment of um, the environment, to equal rights, to safety, um, and um, certainly to the, the well-being of all people equally. And that's an interesting point, David, but I wonder, do businesses, uh, do they act in the same way as the state does? Because it seems that they're they're becoming a bit more conscientious about how staff work in a way that they, I wonder, were they thinking the same way back in the early 20th century, thinking about work in the same way? I mean, we've seen um, resignations in the 2020s in a way I don't think we would have seen in the early 20th century. We work in a different way now. And also there's a, a corporate responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that that, I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, say too many kind words about big businesses in the 2020s, because we could very easily call this the second Gilded Age. But in the same breath, there is more social responsibility, perhaps now, uh, you know, in, in a in very imperfect way. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm not sure. I feel like, you know, there, there's there's some conflicting uh, uh literature perspectives on on that question I think you know I, I've spent some time uh, I spent some time last year uh, tracking donations of big businesses and the way that you know I think if you if you look at the historiography of money and politics over the last 40 years um, it might make you more skeptical about the question of corporate social responsibility beyond a, a set of strategies that really did emerge um, in full force in the 1920s uh, of um, uh, corporate branding. And, you know, I mean, there's the Roland Marchand, the classic Roland Marchand literature on this, um, creating the corporate soul. Uh, uh, this uh, Big businesses tried to market themselves and began really a, a greater effort in the 1920s to market themselves as 
um, paternalistic. Uh, 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 they sponsored company unions. They sponsored outings. The General Electric was actually a forerunner of this as as a company in the uh, in the the do we call them the noughties, the nineteen hundreds uh, and and teens. Um, uh, but so it was going on in some sense that, you know, the, the, the per this was percolating already before the 1920s. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think actually a lot of the dynamics of, of, uh, you know, the, the more, um, uh, the nastier dynamics that, that you're sort of alluding to without, without, uh, specifically citing of the 1918 to 22 moment, we're not in a, we're not in quite the same political moment today where, uh, you know, big business and finance had really refurbished its image um, over the course of World War One uh, as a partner with the state, um, and had had recovered a little bit from some of its, uh, you know, the the industrial relations hearings of nineteen twelve, uh, you know, the sort of uh, 1912-1914 period, um, really made business look bad and. Um, labor militancy uh, existed for a reason, um, and labor violence was quite widespread. And you know, certainly in 1919, uh, as Chris already referred to, right? You had the Seattle General Strike, you had the U.S. Steel Strike, you had the United Mine Workers Strike. Um, uh, then, uh, uh, you know, the reaction from the state, in part, is quite aligned with business reaction um, and kind of violent anti-communism. And I'm afraid that when I think about our contemporary moment, I see a lot of parallels in terms of the kind of politics of uh, violent repression of any kind of left or, you know, not to speak of socialist politics, which of course is like the, the sort of horizons of political imagination in uh, 1918 through 1922 um, were uh, exploding in uh, a, a much more dramatic, um, at least rhetorically, <laughs> rhetorically speaking way. Um, than than they are today, and yet even the sort of most milk toast attempts of leftists in our own moment to to make some inroads in in Democratic Party politics. You know, I mean, you're even talking about potentially a, a more receptive group of people um, are are being denied in significant ways. And I think actually looking over the roundtable before this conversation. Um, even six months ago, I was more optimistic about uh, the possibilities of the Biden administration um, uh, in terms of passing real legislation to, to make inroads against inequality. Um, and I think that is being driven a lot by big business and the priorities of big business. I mean, I couldn't agree more. That was really the heart of what I wanted to get to that you said far more eloquently is that big business seems to be... <laughs> You know, in working in lockstep with the state now, in the way that they they you know maybe given it was wartime or even post wartime, the state seemed a much more powerful and autonomous entity um, than it does today. You know, even if you just follow the money, um, what other approaches? And this is a general question for everyone. What other approaches do you think we can take to the history of pandemics? Because obviously the roundtable took uh, various approaches. And, and, and of course, we haven't been able to include everyone that was part of the roundtable in today's conversation. I was just wondering if you think there's some avenues. I know we've seen, you know, we, we talked a little fleetingly about the environment, perhaps, or, you know, we, we've kind of talked around medical history. You know, we know it's there. It's obviously the elephant in the room when we talk about a pandemic. But what other approaches do you think might help us better understand the impact of pandemics on, on all aspects of human life? I mean, one issue that came up in the, or one suggestion I think that came up in the roundtable, uh, uh, in the published roundtable, was um, to focus on individual and intimate experience of, of the pandemic. Um, 
uh, in families, in um, sort of closely defined communities, um, and uh, really trying to get a texture for the the and then be able to reproduce as historians um, a in an evocative way the suffering that pandemic uh, pandemics actually produce. Um, on on ordinary human beings and to convey that in in a real sense i think this you know that is the kind of um uh antidote to a much more data-driven uh uh approach to understanding pandemics that i think oftentimes yields uh numbers that are so huge as to be meaningless i mean i'm not entirely sure how uh how many people really feel the impact of a million dead from COVID. Um, in the United States, or feel the the impact of you know, well, the official numbers say it's over six million now worldwide, but actually the uh, you know the WHO just issued a report suggesting that actually that excess death was closer to fifteen million worldwide, um, and that you know COVID seems likely to have been either the direct or ancillary cause of that excess death. Um, once you get into numbers like that, it starts taking on a dimension that our brains can't quite process. Um, and and potentially then does not actually motivate activism that the the kind of collective action uh, that would lead to to better policy. Not that history necessarily needs to be focused on leading to better policy, but you know, I think. So we're not taking an interdisciplinary approach to things. We're, we need we need to wait for love in the <laughs> time am, of COVID. I, I, right? I think ultimately I am with Marx on on this quite the early Marx on this question that you know the the point is to change it. <laughs> I, I do think that there is a need to humanize right the, the people who have been affected. Um, I've been thinking a lot, even since writing the for, for the roundtable about disability studies, especially with long COVID, if it's really indeed the case that one in five could of people infected with COVID will be affected in the long run, I think it's going to change a lot of different aspects of our lives. Right? I, I don't know that we can wrap our mind around that. Like, um, life, work, political engagement, everything will be will be different. Right? And I and I wonder. Um, if we write the, that history, even for a hundred years ago, right, um, through disability studies lens, what, what else would we learn uh, from about that experience? That's a great point, and I I had just written down uh, what about that. You know, it, um, there's some solid scholarship, rather obscure, on long flu um, and the uh, placing of people in. Um, Different kinds of dementia wards and uh, and other facilities in 1918, 1919, 1920, and how that uh, seemed to correlate uh, in Western Northern Europe with um, where there were larger outbreaks or higher case case rates, uh, and. And then it disappears in the literature. You can't really find anything um, about by historians and no one was tracking that stuff. So there doesn't appear to be data. At least no one's looked for it. There doesn't appear to be. But that that's uh, illuminating um, in what we might be facing, which some public health officials have been talking about, which is you know having kind of permanent COVID facilities, right? Um, and very few people are grappling with that. You hear, see that almost none in the political discourse in, in virtually any country's <laughs> uh, media that I'm, I'm aware of, right? Um, but this could be one of the most enormous you know, human costs of this. And then back around to David's point, I mean, I think this roundtable and the previous one that I helped to organize 
really for me foregrounded how we need to think about 1918 and 19 in personal terms in to to uh, microscope and telescope out in the way that David was suggesting and the roundtable suggests to look at individual cases to give us more of a nuanced sense because the numbers and the reality of this catastrophic pandemic um, in the midst of, of a wartime situation in which it's so deeply embedded um, don't are, are make make it almost incommensurable. So we need those individual stories. The other thing is to think about what they mean longitudinally, the trauma, personal suffering, Right, the the um, guilt, the contagion guilt, as um, Elizabeth Auka, who's a uh, literary studies scholar, has talked about in her book *Viral Modernism*. People who live through this, you can see contagion guilt in literature and in art. They live through it, and they're they're guilty because their brother died, their parents died, their their children died, right? And or were or were horribly, their lungs were horribly scarred, and they could never, you know, participate in life in the way that they could before. Um, these are things we don't, we haven't thought enough about, even though we've been living now into a third year of this pandemic and the historical, um, literature suggests when you look at the individual cases, how deeply traumatic this was longitudinally. I mean, these are families that are, that are wrecked. And as David said, look, we're over a million deaths in the U S you know, that's now we're roughly one in 350 Americans have died. Like it's, it feels like we should be able to pause and reflect on that suffering and trauma. And yet nationally, it, it's eerily similar to a nation that didn't mourn those deaths in 1920, never memorialized them really. This is what I meant um, though by subsumption so, yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. the pandemic, right? Yeah. Like the subsumption Absolutely. rather than the end. Um, it, it, it's all being subsumed. I mean, less so I think now, and Alan made that point in the in the round table that, um, you know, I think it, it, it's difficult to imagine a round table of historians a hundred years from now saying, you know, how come people just seem to forget about COVID? Um, uh, it, it it doesn't seem likely that that's going to happen, although it could be. But in any case, uh, the the politics of the moment are taking priority in terms of of how policy is being shaped, um, and in a an indirect way than how the pandemic is is actually playing out. Um, and I think, unfortunately, it's very dangerous. And and as Madalena said earlier, it's sort of this this refusal to learn from history um, seems to seems to be uh, very much in evidence. Um, I would just say, you know, from my contrarian nature, uh, one, one make one point about the, the potential dangers of uh, individualizing or focusing too much on suffering, which is that it can be politically paralyzing. And, and I do think that some of the stories that we need to think about um, uh, and histories that we need to look for are histories of uh, organizing around um, self-care in communities, around mutual care, around collective care, and then around collective political action um, to actually transform public policy in productive ways. Um, uh, you know, and I I have no immediate examples to hand, but uh, you know, having been a, a social and and political economic historian long enough and a labor historian long enough, I know they're out there. Um, I think that is so important. And that's a really good message for students that, because I think one of the things that you've all talked about, and I think it's something that we all teach about is empathy and how critically that's important for, uh, 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 for a historian to have when you think about the past. But, but actually what you're saying as well is the, the added dimension to that is that you, you know you need to be active, you need to be an activist as well. And I think that's what many of us as historians are in some way, we're writing about things that we, we have a passion about. David, I wonder if your comment though about um, 100 years from now, if that is you know famous last words, you know, like that, 
And I really wanted to ask Chris this because Chris has been doing the comparisons for, for quite a while now. And, you know, there's a, there's a war on now. There was a war on then. Now maybe the Ukraine-Russian war isn't going to come to dominate post-COVID histories, but we've got a cost of living crisis that, that probably is going to be with us for a long time to come, I would think, or at least the inflation will be. Um, and there's, there's a number of things that are quite worrying that are going to be stealing our attention, not least an election this year, uh, midterm, fair enough, but there's, uh, you know, two more years as a presidential election. Are we going to lose the, not just the lessons, but the memory of COVID, you know, with all that is to come? I mean, I feel much more comfortable making predictions about uh, the future 100 years in advance rather than 10 years in advance. Um, just because I'll be dead by then and, uh, you know, nobody can be around to point my, their finger at me like Nelson and say, ha ha. Um, They're going to resurrect this podcast, <laughs> David. <laughs> yes, I'll be embarrassed for all eternity. Well, I suppose just to be, uh, to counter the the point that Alan Lessoff made in the in the piece and that you seem to subscribe to, David, I can very much imagine in 100 years historians getting together and COVID being next to nothing um, in, in the greater scheme. Uh, particularly, I think some of the things we've been hitting on a lot here, you know, the uh, unequal impact, I can imagine that disappearing within a decade. Uh, you know, I can imagine people not being very concerned with the fact that a lot of communities in the U.S. and around the world, you know, um, maybe never got distribution of vaccines. Um, and that that just be alighting into, you know, a longer history of a, this is sort of what I was implying, a longer history of a kind of uh, medical triumphalism, research and development triumphalism, um, big pharma story, plus, you know, humanitarian, you know, vaccine diplomacy that got some certain success rate that people plant their flag and declare victory on. Um, so, if, I mean, I think those are so those are some elements of this. You know, I, I suppose the the bigger question that, that Mike's getting at is, like, okay, so we've been talking about 1918 and 19. Never has history seemed more relevant, right? I mean, people were crying out for this Gilded Age and Progressive Era historians to talk about this. And I'd been peculiarly interested in this from research I did a million years ago on what was going on in World War One or in this moment and, and the elections that they affected, the midterm elections of, of 1918. In particular, I was interested in something David slightly alluded to what happened to American socialism in 1918. Uh, how come Eugene Debs, the great American socialist, had such a hard time campaigning in a bunch of places? And I realized that it was flu was the primary reason. And then he gets sent to jail for speaking out against the draft. Hey, wartime, you know, wartime suppression of free speech. We've got we've got a full sort of narrative there, right? Um, but yes, they could hold midterm elections even with um, even with a virus rampaging, even not knowing what we now know. We'll now be seeing a second election, as you're suggesting, Mike. I mean, I think, you know, in, in 2024, if the mutations aren't too terrible, um, will there even be masking required inside for those who are voting inside? Uh, I, I doubt it, right, um, in the way that it would have been absolutely required in 2020. And, um, you know, so uh, I don't know if that's a good answer. It's just to say that, you know, that we've seen this exhaustion with everything related to the pandemic. Um, certainly that is evident in the historical record in 1918 and 19, but the lessons of that have not been learned well at all. We can look at the cities and states that, that eased off their restrictions earlier 
in the US and we know that they did worse, generally speaking, some did okay, they, but, but more like out of luck than out of science or um, any rational sort of public health policy. Uh, we, you know, we've seen states, I mean, I think the other thing about data, this is winding answer, but the other thing about data that will be interesting is in some point we are going to learn that the cities and states that were wide open throughout this in the US, we will learn a lot more about um, who suffered most, right? About their economies, about a, a whole lot of elements of, of what's gone into that. We can only surmise right now what that will look like. We're not, you know, there are some, there's some decent preliminary analyses, but I think in two or four years, we'll have a, a much better sense of that. And that may then inform future pandemic public health policy uh, and state politics. You know, it'd be hard to imagine a state like Florida um, staying as wide open if there are definitive studies that uh, across the political spectrum um, you could point to as saying, you know, um, older conservative Republicans, for instance, were dying in much larger numbers than younger uh, liberal Democrats, right? So uh, intensely political, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it right down the middle because they would know that they were killing their constituents if people agreed to that, right? We don't, we don't yet have that the fulsome information related to that. Um, I think you're underestimating the American death drive, Chris. Uh, it, it, you know, <laughs> it's true. Uh, but I'm also uh, trying to potentially overestimate um, the political incentives in that situation. Uh, anyway, that's a winding answer, Mike. I'm not sure uh, where, where you were going with the question. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know where any of this goes. I guess that's my point. I, none of us really do. Anything can happen in the next few decades that could change our view about COVID. Um, but I think what you've given us today, everyone, is a really clear idea about the rhymes and rhythms of history. We've talked a lot about continuity and change. We've talked a lot about empathy. And these are, you know, these are core components about what historians do. And the, the usefulness of history, I think, is a as a discipline or as a trade, I guess, you know, to, to inform the future. And uh, I, I first of all, I wanna thank you all for that, but I also wanted to offer everyone an opportunity to just say one final word because we're getting close to, uh, you know, 80 minutes here and, uh, you know, listeners will stay with us for a while because you're all very compelling. But uh, if you had to wrap it up, you know, what would you say about, uh, you know, the, the, the long history of the, the great flu and where we are now? <laughs> Nobody wants to take it first. I mean, that's a hard question, but you know, I thought you might, someone might like to say something about you know their their piece in the roundtable or the roundtable as as a whole and uh, and its usefulness, really. I mean, I don't know if this is going to come out coherently, but um, just to sort of try to answer that with reference to uh, this little mini dispute that that. Uh, Chris and I got into at the end where I took Alan Lessoff's side on, on the question of historians 100 years ago, um, not being able to gather and identify COVID as a sort of major mover of uh, uh, history um, uh, in the historiography that proceeds from our current moment. Um, I do think that, that uh, we've seen a, a, a quite different scale of state intervention in the economy um, in react in immediate reaction to to covid um, than uh, at least i have encountered in the literature in terms of you know state reaction to the flu of 1918 1919 and when you think particularly just in the us i mean this is you know probably can can uh, span worldwide but particularly in the us um, the recovery packages that were passed and the stimulus checks that were sent out, um, you know, among other things, uh, you know, nearly cut child poverty in half very briefly um, in the United States. It was some of the most ambitious uh, uh, 
social legislation in the United States since the 1960s. Um, and that was because of COVID. Um, and my hope is that actually that, as I said in the roundtable, um, some of that reactive policymaking to COVID uh, in the initial moment, some of that better, uh, more salubrious um, uh, policymaking uh, will actually open people's eyes in terms of the political possibilities um, of, of what the state has the capacity to do when it's oriented toward uh, protecting people and uh, ensuring their safety and their health um, without regard to, uh, you know, and one wishes that this were the case, of course. I mean, I think future studies of the, the, uh, of the stimulus legislation will identify that there were all sorts of people who were left out and that it was actually systematically racist and, and um, sexist and, and uh, uh, you know, they didn't reach people that were in particular employment categories. But, but I do think that identifying that the state can be a force for good um, uh, after 50 years of neoliberalism um, uh, has the potential to actually open a bunch of people's minds about, about what collective action can yield. Um, around questions not just of public health, but of uh, economic justice, racial justice, uh, uh, international justice, um, and and uh, economic justice. One of the things that keeps me up at night is actually the intersection of pandemics and climate change, uh, and the fact that we're headed towards a time where more and more people will be displaced. Right, uh, and so I wonder if we'll even have the luxury to forget COVID nineteen because it, it seems that climate, it, the intersection of climate change, will not allow us to do that. What what we do with it is right because it could be a moment of seen as a moment of opportunity and solidarity. I don't know. I hope it is, but I don't know. Right. Uh, I think we've seen both the best and the worst of what we can do. Um, but I I I do think that. Uh, it might be a bit more difficult to forget COVID-19 than it was 100 years ago about the flu, right? Um, in part because that it's clear that that's where we're headed, right? There's going to be more crisis. Um, and I would hope that this is a moment that pushes us towards more collaboration rather than less collaboration. But I honestly don't know. I wish I had a more polished answer, but this is something that I have been thinking about, about honestly. Yeah, I mean, one of the motivations for the roundtable was to explore dimensions of aftermaths of that pandemic and, and just tease out some of these possible connections from really skilled historians who know a lot uh, and also recognizing the unknowability of what's to come um, and, and even looking at the historical record and, and seeing the serial serially wrong predictions <laughs> around 1919 and 1920. I mean, that's 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 illuminating in and of itself. Yeah, one thing that comes out in the roundtable um, that I think is useful to just ponder for a moment is the near universality of some experience of COVID today. Um, I don't know what that portends. It could be for better or for worse, but it is interesting to think that around a globe with nearly uh, what 10 billion people, um, we've all experienced a pandemic in the last few years, everyone who's, who's still alive. Um, and what that might mean for solidarities, what that might mean for, um, you know, a, a kind of potential for change or, um, or a recognition of the limits of the structures of their societies. Uh, there, there's a lot there that you could unpack. Um, the pandemic of 1918 and 19 doesn't appear to have been quite as universally felt uh, 
Um, I don't know why that would be. Uh, you know, I think part of the literature here is that we don't have great global histories of that pandemic. The questions weren't being asked. The, you know, the, you'd asked about data, the documents aren't fully there. Uh, I suppose you could tease that out more, but um, we, we do have that today. So that, that's one thing I've been thinking a lot about. And the other element that, I, that I'm, I, is historical analogies. You know, um, if you look at the people in my, in my sector, you know, I do the US and the world and foreign policy, people are talking a lot about the cold, the cold War. What, what version of the Cold War are we living in now? Uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or is it some earlier era that's a better comparison? You know, obviously, we're talking of the 100-year comparison, the end of the progressive era, this pandemic. But if you think in other global relations, is this more a moment of dislocation um, like the 1890s? There was uh, 1889, 1890. It was another pandemic, another flu. That might have been why some of the older people in the population actually had immunity in, in 1918 and 19. Um, and if so, what does that say? The sort of scramble for colonial acquisitions, rising nationalism. You know, um, if you're if you want to play that out, does that lead to the kind of global integration that we saw by 1914? But that also led to the conditions of a, of a world war. Um, you know, the kind of insular politics of that era, uh, which had the, both this progressivism that we're all really conversant in and also this reactionary politics of conservatism. I mean, if, if those feel really palpable to me and much like much better analogs than Cold War stuff that we hear a lot about. So, you know, uh, I guess that's a call for why we need a podcast like this, uh, studying the Gilded Age and progressive era, because maybe those are the best kinds of comparisons for us to consider. Well, I think I should just leave it there. Uh, well, for, and for all of your hesitation, everyone paused there. And and the, in terms of concluding remarks, I don't think we could end it any better. That was wonderful. Thank you all so well much. Well done, Michael. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank yeah. you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.